Hi, this is Miranda, and you're listening to Changing Climates, an initiative with the Community Climate Council. In today's segment, we're launching episode one of our new series that looks at the COVID-19 crisis and the climate crisis. As we live through both of these crises, we can't help but reflect and observe how we've responded and relate this to our response with climate change. As we collectively adapt through these changing climates, there are a range of topics that can be discussed, and I'm sure you're all discussing this at home. Things from health, economics, environmental and social impacts, so we've divided the series into five segments. Joining me for the first episode today, I have council members LJ, Natasha, and Muska. Let's just rewind, slow down for a moment, and LJ's going to start us off and talk about how this all started. So how did COVID-19 emerge in the human population, and what exactly is a zoonotic virus? Thank you, Miranda. So COVID-19 is a disease which originates from a zoonotic virus. What is a zoonotic virus? A zoonotic virus is a type of virus that comes from animals but jumps into the human population. Now, the appearance of zoonotic viruses has increased greatly in the past few years. Some uh, better-known examples of this are SARS in 2002 and the swine flu in 2009. Now, the name of the virus that we call coronavirus today is actually called SARS-CoV-2. It is a part of a family of viruses called coronavirus. Other viruses in this family are SARS-CoV-1, which is what caused SARS, and MERS-CoV, which caused MERS, also known as the camel flu. COVID-19 is the name of the disease that SARS-CoV-2 causes. This is important to remember. SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, and COVID-19 is the disease. Okay, so I totally remember living through SARS in elementary school, but MERS, I definitely don't remember. Why is that less known? Yeah, so the thing thing about MERS is it's very similar to COVID-19. It has basically all the same symptoms, coughing, fever, shortness of breath. MERS actually stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. MERS is lesser known because it's a lot less contagious than SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, it isn't airborne. It's difficult to contract outside of a hospital setting. And so far, there have been zero recorded cases of people contracting MERS from asymptomatic patients. So it's a lot easier to control. Okay, so with COVID-19, I'm sure a lot of other people have been hearing things about pangolins. Um, Their um, outer scales are usually used for traditional medicine and things like that. And how do we know that it originated from bats? And should we let viewers know that it did not originate from pangolins? Is that correct? The thing is, we're not entirely sure, but our best estimate right now is that the coronavirus came from bats. And the reason why we can fairly confidently say this is because most of the, or all the coronavirus, all the viruses in the coronavirus family have come from bats. And bats, the thing about bats is they're great hosts for viruses because viruses don't bother them. And because of this, viruses spread much easily, much more easily among their population and it's believed to have come from, sorry, SARS-CoV-2 is believed to have come from the consumption of bat tongue, but that may not necessarily be true. 
the thing you're hearing about pangolins is because pangolins may have been the intermediary between bats and humans. So SARS-CoV-2 may have started from a bat and jumped into a pangolin and then into a human being. We saw something similar happen with SARS in 2002. The SARS-CoV-1 jumped from, originated from a bat, sorry, and then jumped into a civet, which is a small ferret-like creature, and then into human beings. Right, yeah, I've heard about those civets. mm -hmm. And the same thing happened with MERS, actually. It started from bats, jumped into camels, and then into human beings. The thing about COVID-19 is we don't know the intermediary yet, but pangolins, snakes, and fish are all the number one or number one, two, and three uh, prospects who we think it could have came from just because they're the animals most commonly found in the Chinese wet market. Okay. And what, what is a wet market exactly? Yeah. So a wet market is basically just a marketplace that sells livestock, produce, and other perishable goods. Not all wet markets sell live animals, but the wet markets that we talk about and the wet markets that get media attention are, are the ones that sell live animals. They're, an, they're a problem because they're a breeding ground for zoonotic viruses because live animals are kept crammed together and in tight spaces. And it's a perfect place for a virus to jump between species. Definitely. And not just selling them live, but at times they are the same place where they are butchered and sold as well. Is that right? Exactly. And that's that's the key danger here. Okay. So because bats are such a great host for the virus and a serious threat to human health, the Eco Health Alliance has actually been studying viruses on bats in China for a few years now. Now, the, stu- the reason they study these viruses is because they're such an imminent threat and because they're beside they're so close to the human popula- to the human population in China. So when the EcoHealth Alliance finds viruses in these bats, they will flag them as either high risk or low risk. And when a virus is flagged as high risk, the Chinese government itself will come in and try to take control. Okay, and what do we mean by control? I know there's a lot of different measures uh, that we see being take place. And um, in terms of enforcement or guidelines, different governments are defining control in different ways. So what do we mean here when you mention it? Mm -hmm. So in this case, they will often just limit the human population from entering into those areas where a virus has been found. Okay. And what's interesting is a virus was found a few years ago by the EcoHealth Alliance. Now, this particular virus has been found to be 96% identical to what we now know as SARS-CoV-2. So, and it was initially flagged as low risk because there was a fairly low chance that it could get into the human population. But, you know, the 96% similarity rate hints and, you know, it's, it's a fairly likely assumption that it's a fairly accurate assumption, rather, that this virus is what turned into or mutated into SARS-CoV-2. No, definitely. I think that's pretty fair to assume. And you mentioned that there's been a rise in zoonotic viruses. So why is that increase happening? Yeah, so there are a, there are a few cases for, or a few reasons for this, rather. Deforestation is a big one. You know, deforestation is a huge health risks health risk that not a lot of people think about because as we cut down the wilderness and we leave these animals without habitats, we're forcing them to come into close contact with human beings. 
And by doing this, we greatly increase the possibility for the viruses that they're carrying to jump from them into us. Definitely. And then speaking of um, being in confined areas, we've known this with factory farming, which is also a huge risk. And we've seen swine flu and mad cow disease here in North America. And it isn't, uh, it isn't anything surprising to hear that keeping animals in really confined spaces among their feces and other things um, will lead to an emergence of diseases that can spread over to humans. This definitely lets us know that we should be more careful and critical of the process by which we get our food and the current state of our food system. And it also reminds us that we live in a borderless world and what happens in one local area truly impacts us all globally. Well, thank you so much for that, LJ. No, not a problem. Thank you for your time. As we know, local and national governments have been collaborating to ensure we flatten the curve and are monitoring social distancing practices in many ways. And something that's definitely been on my mind is how quarantine has been impacting our environment. And to discuss this a bit further, we have Natasha on the show. Hi, Natasha. Hi, thank you. Uh, uh, coronavirus has not only affected us in our everyday lives, is having significant effects on our environment, and I'd love to discuss these changes with you. To begin with, LJ discussed the bans wanted on wet markets and the illegal wildlife trade. However, the pandemic has had some negative effects on the environment, especially with many reserves around the world. These reserves are seeing an increase in poaching, especially with the lack of tourism and a loss of ranger jobs. Poachers have been taking advantage of these empty reserves. However, on a brighter note, a lot of wildlife is having a chance to explore more urban areas and roam around freely with the lack of people running around everywhere. But many wild animals are quite dependent on human behavior, especially behavior that includes getting food from humans. Countries all over the world are experiencing similar situations. Like in Wales, there's mountain goats running around or monkeys fighting over food in Thailand. Um, with all this time at home, I've had a lot more time to get some work done outside, and I'm not too sure about you, but during this pandemic, I've been a lot more aware of the birds around my house, especially with a decrease in airplane traffic. Oh, that's so amazing. And yeah, I've been seeing like uh, a lot of pictures on Instagram with uh, fox and coyote roaming around Toronto. But, you know, that is a part of their natural range. I've actually been wondering... Have the wildlife really been emerging more often or are we just becoming more mindful of our surroundings and more observant and taking that time to look outside and appreciate wildlife? It definitely makes you wonder. Exactly, for sure. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of benefits. Another benefit of us not really going outside and taking time to observe our surroundings has been a decrease in traffic, which has led to a decrease in roadkill. I actually read an article that mentioned the busiest roads in Muskoka in southern Ontario normally have some of the highest turtle mortality rates, but since there's a decrease in traffic, there's honestly a possibility of turtle populations having a slight increase. Oh, that's amazing. And some viewers, if you're local, you would know Heart Lake Road in Brampton. They're, that is huge, a huge area for snake and turtle crossing as well. So hopefully we're seeing the similar patterns there. Um, but yeah, on morning commutes, leaving from Brampton, uh, there's usually so much roadkill on the road, usually possums and birds, whether it be seagulls or Canadian geese. 
versus now that's definitely decreased. But uh, then again, has it truly decreased or am I just not as observant because I'm not having that opportunity to commute? So it definitely makes you question that. Yeah, for sure. I think being at home and like having a lot more time to look outside and not travel as much, we've definitely become more mindful of what's going on. At least I hope so. Um, This pandemic has also had a large effect on how often people travel and get around places. I'm sure you guys have heard news about air pollution clearing up. Like, people in India are able to see the Himalayas for the first time in ages. A decline in air pollution is definitely one of the positive effects of this pandemic. Definitely. There was actually an article I recently read written by David Suzuki, and he was reflecting upon how great it must be for people in India to realize what air is supposed to look like. And just him mentioning what air should look like just really changed my perception. And um, he hopes that being able to see the horizon in their view without any smog in the way is something that might inspire a change for the better. Now, when he mentions air pollution, how does this relate to greenhouse gases? Well, some of the biggest contributors to air pollution include carbon dioxide emissions and nitrogen oxide emissions. We'll begin by talking about carbon dioxide, as it makes up for the majority of greenhouse gas emissions. The reason carbon dioxide is able to contribute to climate change is because it it traps heat, also known as the greenhouse effect. Carbon dioxide is released when fossil fuels are burned, deforestation occurs, and natural causes like volcanic eruptions happen. Um, This pandemic has caused a lack of transportation, as well as reduction in industrial activity, and this has led to a decrease in carbon dioxide emissions. This decrease has been seen in places such as New York and China. Next up is nitrogen dioxide. Oh, oh my god, sorry, can we pause that? Yeah. Whoops, nitrogen dioxide. I put nitrogen dioxide, not nitrogen oxide. Okay. Should we start from the beginning? (laughs) Yeah, I'm so Sorry. sorry. The Anchor app is annoying where I can't edit the middle. It's like just the beginning and the end. So I don't know why. But yeah, I think it was. It, is that a good segue? Did that sound That good? is a really good segue. I just wrote that oxide instead of oxide. And like, okay, great. Whoops. I want to start to. So there's that. Sure. Definitely. There was actually an article that I recently read uh, written by David Suzuki, and he was reflecting upon how great it must be for people in India to realize what air is supposed to look like. And just seeing that word supposed to look like really made me think and it changed my perception. And he hopes that that being able to. Oh, God. Is he really? so close okay we're so close to the end (laughs) okay at three three minutes (laughs) definitely there was actually an article that i recently read written by david suzuki and he was reflecting upon how great it must be for people in india to realize what air is supposed to look like And when he said what it's supposed to look like, that really changed my perception of what the smog there truly is like. And he's hoping that being able to see the horizon in their view without smog in the way 
is something that will inspire change for the better. And when he mentioned air pollution, how does this differ or relate to greenhouse gases? I'm glad you asked. Um, some of the biggest contributors to air pollution include carbon dioxide emissions and nitrogen oxide emissions. We'll begin by talking about carbon dioxide as it makes up for the majority of greenhouse gas emissions. The reason carbon dioxide is able to contribute to climate change is because it traps heat, which is also known as the greenhouse effect. Carbon dioxide is released when fossil fuels are burned, deforestation occurs, or even natural causes like volcanic eruptions. This lack of transportation and reduction in industrial activity has led to a decrease in these carbon dioxide emissions, which can be seen in places such as New York City and China. Next up is nitrogen oxide. Nitrogen oxide can have numerous impacts on human health. For example, it causes smog, which can cause many respiratory issues. Nitrogen dioxide is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide and is really prominent in areas with lots of traffic like cities and around airports. I mean, for anyone who's stuck in traffic, like who's ever been stuck in traffic on the 401 during rush hour or any highway, think about how much nitrogen oxide is being created. Um, I recently read an article from NASA which states that lower fossil fuel emissions can be seen from space because of this pandemic. Um, yes, I saw that as well. That's amazing. It's so exciting. They also discussed how the nitrogen dioxide levels in the air are a lot lower than normal, and I'm sure there's many people flying around. However, as some countries are beginning to see a decrease in coronavirus cases, there is a jolt in industrial activities to start opening up the economy again. And that begs to differ, like, are we going to overrate some of the progress that has been made? And while we're able to see some benefits of this pandemic, when we think the wildlife populations, greenhouse gas emissions and pollution, we're certainly not saying that what we're going through is a positive thing to experience. This goes a bit into ecofascism a bit, which will, which Muska will be able to explain a bit more. Perfect, thank you. So some of the biggest contributors to air pollution include carbon dioxide emissions and nitrogen oxide emissions. We'll begin by talking about carbon dioxide as it makes up for the majority of greenhouse gas emissions. The reason carbon dioxide is able to contribute to climate change is because it traps heat, which is also known as the greenhouse effect. Carbon dioxide is released when fossil fuels are burnt, deforestation occurs, and even from natural causes like volcanic eruptions. The lack of transportation and reduction in industrial activity during this pandemic has led to a decrease in these carbon dioxide emissions. The decrease can be seen in places such as New York City and China. Next up is nitrogen oxide. Nitrogen oxide can have numerous impacts on human health. For example, it causes smog, which can lead to many respiratory issues. Nitrogen dioxide is a very powerful greenhouse gas and is extremely prominent in areas with a lot of traffic like cities or around airports. For anyone who's been stuck in traffic on the 401 during rush hour, I wonder how much nitrogen oxide is being created. Yeah, I'm definitely sure that so many of our listeners who are local can relate to that, commuting anywhere from the region of Peel to Toronto, for sure. (laughs) An article from NASA states that lower fossil fuel emissions can even be seen from space and that nitrogen dioxide levels in the air are lower than normal. But a decrease in air pollution surprisingly has a downside. And while it might seem slightly contradictory, air pollution has been known to slow down global warming in a sense. This is because the pollutants in the air reflect incoming heat away from the ground. 
So this can be explained using volcanoes as an example. Volcanoes have both a warming and cooling effect on the environment. So when a volcano erupts, it releases gases like carbon dioxide, as previously mentioned, but it also releases dust and a lot of other particulate matter. The gases released cause a warming effect, and the dust particles reflect a lot of incoming solar radiation, causing an overall cooling effect. Hopefully, that helps break down how how we may be facing warmer temperatures as air pollution has decreased. Definitely, and I think that really speaks to the complexity of the issue, but I think it is important to mention that the emissions from transportation are huge, and that certainly outweighs the amount of particulates in the air released by pollution that contributes to that cooling effect. Is that right? Yes, for sure. And as some countries are beginning to see a decrease in coronavirus cases, there has been a jolt in industrial activities to start opening up the economy again. So are we going to overwrite some of the progress that has been made? And while we're able to see some of the benefits of this pandemic when we think of wildlife populations and greenhouse gas emissions and pollution, we are certainly not saying that what we're going through is a positive thing to experience, which kind of touches on ecofascism, which Muska will explain a bit more. So Muska, please shed some light on what Natasha meant by ecofascism and how this narrative has been impacting the current climate change and COVID-19 discourse. Yeah, so ecofascism is something that many people have recently been exposed to the fir- to for the first time during the pandemic. Um, and this is usually with regards to how people are monitoring the changes within local ecosystems and the environment while humans are under lockdown. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been seeing lots of posts on social media um, showing about how nature is healing and we're the virus. Um, Miranda, is there anything you've... Yeah, I've actually, I actually have been seeing things like that. And at first I thought, you know, it was like a bit of a positive thing. But after I've been seeing that there has been ecofascist arguments towards it, then I completely shift my perspective. So if you want to share a bit about that. Yeah, so a lot of these posts, as you mentioned, have been heavily linked to and are receiving criticism for promoting ecofascism. Um, I know some people are making memes out of it um, because a, a lot of them are fake, um, such as the Venice Canals. Um, people said there were like dolphins coming back and also oh that's not true no um yeah and b there's also like eco-fascist narrative that you were also talking about now what exactly is eco-fascism i should get to the point already um so eco-fascism in its proper definition is an extremist ideology that justifies and aims for a reduction in the human population as a solution to the climate crisis um now the concept of eco-fascism which is pushing for a mass reduction in the human population, has existed long before the climate movement. Um, it traces back to the 1700s when um, an English scholar and economist called Thomas Malthus had stated that problems hunger and disease were actually caused by the working class for having larger families. And these kinds of perspectives lead on to the justification of killing off the population for a specific benefit, which was in this case to protect people's health. Right now, what we're seeing is that a pandemic is a good thing because it helps with the climate crisis. And now I just think it's important for listeners to know that we as the Peel Community Climate Council do not condone ecofascism and that isn't what we value in our organization. Um, The purpose of this podcast and this series in particular is to share information with our listeners, with you all about the links between the climate crisis and its impact on our daily lives, and to start a discussion about COVID-19 and its relation to the climate crisis. 
Ecofascism is something that many people are hearing about for the first time, and it's important that we all understand this term and many others in order to advocate for change in a responsible way. Definitely. Thank you so much for um, sharing that with our viewers. I think that is a really important point to let them understand that we're not condoning that, but that is something that has been existing for sure. And speaking on the correlation between COVID-19 and climate change, we've definitely seen similarities in the communities that have been impacted. Yeah, definitely. Um, Obviously, we have different communities being disproportionately affected by both the climate crisis and by COVID-19. I think that's something Natasha wanted to talk about. So on to her. So just to provide some clarity to all our viewers, let's dive into what exactly a marginalized community is. A marginalized community is defined as a group or community that experienced social, political, and economic discrimination. This pandemic has definitely shown how different communities are impacted by coronavirus. But what exactly is the correlation between marginalized communities, climate change, and the coronavirus then? Well, I'm glad you asked. Many of us are lucky to be able to work from home or apply for the emergency response benefit, but that isn't the case for a lot of people. Many individuals are working jobs that don't allow them to work from home and now have become essential jobs due to the coronavirus. Some of those who are at most risk of coronavirus complications are those with heart and respiratory issues. These issues can sometimes be linked back to a lack of of access to proper, affordable, and healthy food. When looking at climate change, however, many, many communities already have a lack of access to food resources, whether it's due to geographical or socioeconomic boundaries. When talking about a pandemic, the issue of proper and accessible healthcare is an extremely important part of the discussion. Many individuals in marginalized communities are lacking lacking proper access to healthcare. As previously mentioned, respiratory and heart issues can create even more complications with coronavirus. However, the cause of many respiratory illnesses can be linked back to climate change and air pollution, like when we talked about nitrogen oxide and causing smog. The severity of air pollution can be more predictable in certain areas, such as the proximity of a neighborhood to a factory. And unfortunately, a lot of marginalized communities are placed in areas of high risk based on socioeconomic status. The correlation between how marginalized communities are treated when looking at coronavirus and climate change are a lot more similar than one might have thought. It really begins to feed the idea that no one is really immune to these threats. Definitely. And when we think about our local context in the region of Peel, majority of our citizens are marginalized and a lot of them actually do have cardiac disease. I'm not sure if you saw a stat by the region of Peel, but it's actually quite high in our region. So yeah, this is actually really interesting. Those are definitely one of the key correlations that first came to my mind as I watched the news and I was finally seeing those headlines of marginalized communities being impacted differently. And at times there is still that discourse going around that climate change is something that is yet to come and it is not something that we are currently living through, which couldn't be further from the truth. And to frame this a little bit better... How can we look at COVID-19 as potentially being a result of climate change? Well, some have argued that a warming climate could actually be a lot more favorable for viruses, such as those in the coronavirus family, to thrive. 
Are there any other correlations that we can look at? Yeah, well, first of all, our climate, warming climate makes things um, a better be- breeding ground for disease-carrying insects like mosquitoes, which could lead to more vector-borne diseases, whereas we're having this pandemic with the uh, coronavirus. Now, these vector-borne diseases are usually associated with areas um, with warmer temperatures. However, we need to keep in mind that as our planet continues to warm, these diseases will start to move further north as they are already doing so. And I think it's important to keep in mind that um, these vector-borne diseases have had incidences in the Western Hemisphere. It's just that the only reason why we don't have as much um, incidence of them now is because we have the resources to protect people from infection and we have a higher quality of life here whereas other countries aren't as equipped to deal with them so again it's going to become a a risk for us here as well Um, just like an increase of five degrees in the mean maximum weekly temperature in the U.S. was associated with 32 to 50 percent higher incidence of reported West Nile fever infection so that's just an example of how our warming climate interrelates with the prevalence of these diseases. Definitely. And that's just with a five degree increase. And there has been a lot of research um, on vector-borne diseases increasing their exposure when the temperatures increase. So just to clarify, in regards to mosquitoes, those are vector-borne diseases, but the COVID-19 virus is a zoonotic virus. Now, as temperatures warm, there is also a lot of melting of the permafrost just north of us in Canada that we've been hearing about. For our curious listeners, permafrost is any ground that remains completely frozen at zero degrees Celsius or colder for at least two years straight. And melting permafrost is just such an overlooked threat to human health. It can release harmful pathogens that have survived in ice for long periods of time. An example of this was an anthrax outbreak that happened in Siberia in 2016. It wound up killing a boy. Now, normally about 50 centimeters of exterior permafrost layers melt every year as our Earth heats up. And we can expect this to increase and expose deeper layers, increasing the risk of more infectious agents being released and coming into contact with human beings. It's important to note that the Arctic Circle is melting at about three times at a three times faster rate than the rest of the world which is what makes it such a great nest for the release of old pathogens. Wow, that's startling. Mm-hmm. And scientists found RNA fragments of the Spanish flu virus from the 19 out- 1918 outbreak in Alaskan permafrost. And in 2005, NASA was able to revive bacteria that has been frozen for 32,000 years. And this was in a controlled area. Imagine what that would look like out in the wild. Right, and when we think about the climate warming and causing all of these impacts, we have to kind of think back as to why the warming is happening in the first place. And a huge role uh, comes from the use of fossil fuels and fossil fuel extraction itself brings workers close to wildlife as they directly disturb the soil to extract those fossil fuels and those release bacterial spores from the ground. And many times the workers need to stay there weeks at a time. And so they set up camp And that further increases the risk of transmission. 
Speaking of fossil fuel extraction, in order to extract these fossil fuels, there needs to be a lot of change to land cover, which is a form of habitat destruction. Habitat destruction is a large contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, as well as increases the risk of vial transmutation from wildlife to humans. Habitat destruction normally involves deforestation and a change in land cover, especially for agriculture. For example, we've been so caught up with the pandemic and its imminent threat, we didn't even realize that the Amazon is continuing to be deforested for agriculture. Will we go once this pandemic is over or is this our wake-up call yeah you know one of the biggest takeaways from all of this should be the way that we as humans interact with our environment and with wild animals the fact is that COVID-19 happened because of our lack of understanding of the connection between human behavior and the environment it happened because we encroached on the homes of these wild animals zoonotic viruses are the biggest threat to human safety and health right now it's estimated that there are over 1.5 million viruses out there in animals that we know nothing about. By encroaching on the homes of these animals and coming into contact with them in ways that we never had before, we are putting ourselves at risk and making us much more vulnerable to getting sick. You know, on the topic of lessons, it would be an opportunity lost if we don't see the importance of reacting quickly and well to incoming threats. If we had reacted quicker to COVID-19, we would be doing much better right now. You know, three weeks before any quarantine or any shutdown measures were put in place, Dr. Li Wenliang, a doctor in Wuhan, China, reported on the emergence of COVID-19 and signaled at the damage that it could cause. He was, however, quickly shut up by Wuhan police and told to keep quiet. If quarantine measures were implemented when Dr. Wenliang had warned us about them, then we would have 95% fewer cases of COVID-19. Wow, that I is found- huge. Yeah, and I found all of this information on a Netflix episode of Pandemics Explained yes, about coronavirus. Yes, I watched that as well. That one is really good. Definitely for it's all the so viewers good. listening, they should definitely review it. It's really comprehensive. It's extremely informative. I found myself taking notes like two minutes in. Yeah. And you know, similarly, if we react now rather than later to climate change, we're going to see much better results and we will have much less work to do in the long run. In the summer of 2019, we saw Australia go up in flames. And if that isn't enough of a push for us to make to take climate action, then we need to seriously reevaluate how we treat the environment. We need to seriously reconsider what this planet means to us. Yes, and I'm so glad that you mentioned those points. That's such a great segue into episode two, where we're going to look at how we react to disasters, what our response is as a society, and how we perceive immediate versus long-term risks. So listeners, if any of the topics discussed today in episode one interest you, please stay tuned for our series. Yay! Thank you for tuning in today and listening to the first episode of this series, and thanks to all the council members who are on today's episode. Again, they are council members at the Community Climate Council, which is a nonpartisan, youth-led community organization promoting climate literacy and political advocacy in the region of Peel, Ontario. If you'd like to stay up to date with what we're up to, give us a follow on Instagram at Peel Climate Council or Twitter at Peel Climate, or visit our website at www.communityclimatecouncil.org.